ministered on our block, on our, in, in our community, and um, I'm thankful that the Lord has us here in our city. Our city's in desperate need of Jesus. Um, I was just, uh, believe it or not, I do have a scooter. I know y'all can laugh, go ahead. Um, but I have, a little, <laughs> I have a little electric scooter that I go through town and I'm just riding around seeing what's going on. And it breaks my heart to see what's happening in our city. You know, in some ways we see these buildings being erected and uh, you know, all this stuff happening, which some people would say is good, but in most of our communities, we can't afford to live here anymore. You know, so there's a lot of challenges, a lot of anger and frustration happening in our communities. And so there's this tension that's out there and uh, we need to pray. Uh, there's tension in our city, believe it or not. Prosperity is happening in Lancaster City. Um, but there's also tension and a serious need for the Lord. And that's why we're here. Um, and I, just to encourage you and exhort you, the, the world, and especially our city, can't afford for people to play games in the church. We need to be serious about our faith. We need to love the Lord God. We need to live as Christians and be lights in our city. Because our city is very dark, believe it or not. So anyway, uh, with that being said, we are in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 to 12. We're going through the gospel of Luke together, so if you could turn there. Luke 12, 8 to 12 is our text. Once we're done with the gospel of Luke, we will be going into the book of Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is like the part two to the Gospel of Luke. So just a heads up, you probably want to read that ahead of time and be encouraged in the process. So Luke 12, 8 to 12, starting in verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, be with us today, we ask. May our focus be on you. May our eyes and our ears be open to see and hear your word today. Use me, Lord. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, we can hear nothing. And so would you, would you open up our ears and our eyes to you here today? Help me not to focus on man, but to focus on you that I may... Worship you in the preaching of your word and help us to listen so that we could listen and hear what the spirit has to say according to your word. Be with us today, we ask. We beg, Lord God, be with us. You are the vine and we are the branches. And Father, you are the vine dresser. Work today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, speaking for Jesus Christ today has come, you know, has, has been very challenging. There's much opposition when we say we're speaking on behalf of Christ. But you know what? This is nothing new. 
Augustine said the martyrs were bound, imprisoned, scourged, racked, burnt, rent, and butchered in his time. But there's another thing that Augustine said. Yet they multiplied. So persecution resulted in speaking for Christ. That's, that's what comes when we talk about ministering the gospel. And what always accompanies the message is the continual perseverance of it through the people of God. Jesus was acknowledged even as God's people were threatened with torture and death. If you know your Christian history, uh, the Donatist schism back in uh, the 200s originated as a great persecution where uh, Diocletian would tell Christians and threaten them so that they can give up their Bibles and stop preaching and to give up meeting together. And many did. Many fell off. Many said, we can't take this persecution. And that's why there was that controversy of what do we do with those pastors that said, yeah, take the Bibles, please don't kill me. So denial has happened as threats came to those professing faith. It's nothing new. And our text here today shows that forgiveness can still be extended to those who have fallen short. So at first glance, when you read the text, it's like, dang, I better watch myself. But actually, the tone of the text is not so much to dump on you all this warning as it is that it's supposed to encourage you. A life of denial and a hardened heart that overtly blasphemes the Holy Spirit, the scriptures describes one as a life that will be denied. We live in an overtly sinful culture that sneers at the Christian faith. And what we're supposed to do as we follow the instructions given to the disciples is to trust the Holy Spirit when faced with these issues. I'm for apologetics and theology and digging deep into the word. But apart from the spirit, it means absolutely nothing. You can have the greatest argument, but without the spirit's power, it means nothing. There's probably apologists who don't know Jesus and know the arguments for Jesus. What's more important, saint? Relationship with God. Trusting the Holy Spirit for a word, for, for something that he said in his word that he will recall it. Now, those of y'all who know me, I have a bad memory. I barely remember what happened yesterday. Seriously. Yeah, uh-oh, yeah. This is just... Right? My memory's bad. But listen, when we go out and evangelize and share the gospel, I start remembering verses. I start remembering things that I learned. And the Holy Spirit is bringing up scriptures that I forgot a long time ago. And so it's the spirit empowering that we should be preoccupied with. Not necessarily all the argumentation. We ought to trust that the spirit will give us what to say at the moment. God has given us what to say in his word and the Holy Spirit can empower us to say what is needed during threats, persecution, and or rejection. So if we fall short, as long as there is breath in our lungs, saint, and conviction in our hearts, we can go to God for forgiveness and help. 
Let that be the tone here today of our text. So our three points here today for you note takers. Point number one, acknowledging the Son of God in verse 8. Acknowledging the Son of, the Son of Man, actually. Point number two, speaking against the Son of Man. And then point number three, speaking for the Son of Man. So acknowledging the Son of Man, speaking against the Son of Man, then speaking for the Son of Man is our outline for today. So point number one, acknowledging the Son of Man in verse eight. In the beginning, the conjunction, if you understand this, and, and I tell you, which is in our verse, reminds us that Jesus says something before our text that is connected. So in the meantime, when one of the lawyers answered Jesus after declaring woes over them, you remember when he said, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you? One of the lawyers answered Jesus after declaring woes over them, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us. You're offending us. Jesus continued by saying, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. He declared woes over them because they burdened people with unbearable religious demands, which they never lifted themselves. They built monuments for the prophets and their ancestors who they killed long ago, yet in their hearts, they agreed with what their ancestors did. They killed the prophets and joined in their crime by building monuments while rejecting, actually at this point of time, rejecting the greatest prophet of them all. You see, Jesus began to talk about God and how he sent prophets and apostles to them. In God's wisdom, he did this and how they would kill some and persecute others. This generation, Jesus said, will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets. So this generation was lost. And then these religious leaders remove even the key of knowledge of God while not even being in the kingdom of God themselves. I've experienced this in a visible church. I was told I shouldn't come into church because I don't have a suit and tie. But those with suit and ties in that church probably weren't in the church. They probably weren't the church. They're preoccupied with how you look rather than your heart condition before the Lord. Thank God y'all ain't got to get dressed up in here. Amen. After saying all this, Jesus left from there and the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile to Christ. You know, they even try to provoke him to, with many questions. They try to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. It was after this intense encounter that we see in Luke 12, many people following Christ. The text says thousands followed him so much that they were trampling on one another. Then Jesus turns first to his disciples and warned them about the yeast of the Pharisees, the yeast being hypocrisy. Jesus don't like hypocrisy. And then he spoke about a time when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. So he wanted his disciples to be unwavering regarding the gospel being proclaimed. And he wanted them to do it free from hypocrisy. It would be nice if you're going to share about Jesus that you don't live a hypocritical life. That's probably the number one complaint I get from outsiders. 
unbelievers. Yeah, I can't go to church. Full of hypocrites. They're kind of right. Look in the mirror. Amen? You didn't smell all that good this past week, y'all. You, you didn't look that good. There, there's, <laughs> there's blemishes, right? There's blemishes you can see. Shortcomings you can see in your life where you felt short of God's glory. That's okay. It's what you do with it that matters. Do you go before God confessing your sin and repenting? The Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers didn't. He reminded them that those who sought to kill them due to gospel proclamation couldn't harm them. You remember the sermon last week. The one to rightly fear is God. God has the power to kill and he can throw anyone into hell. And the beauty of the gospel is that the disciples, along with every other believer in Jesus Christ, did not have to be afraid because God will never cast any of his children out. Praise God. Jesus meant it when he said in John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never means never. You know what that means? Once you're his, he'll never cast you out. He, he doesn't change his mind. He's like, you know what? <laughs> yeah, I ain't feeling you right now, so you got to go over here. Even though I saved you, even though you're my son and my daughter, God doesn't do that. If you're tripping, he'll correct you so that you can look more like him. He's not going to let you go as far as to stray and fall off the cliff into damnation. He will never cast you out. So you shouldn't be afraid. If God cares and never forgets every sparrow and has every hair on your head counted, why should you be afraid of the one who considers you more valuable? Our worth in Christ should compel us not only to share the gospel boldly, but it should compel a life that has no fear when it comes to our justification before God. This is the situation and what Jesus is doing here in our text. He's speaking first to the disciples, wanting to encourage them to be bold, to have no fear regarding what God has done for them. Listen to that. Listen to that here today. This is not to cause you to doubt. It's cause, it, is, it should cause you to be encouraged, to have assurance of faith. Now, it's after this that Jesus continues to make the point of assuring his disciples that they will be acknowledged and that those who deny him will be denied. So what does it mean to acknowledge Christ before men? Well, acknowledging God before men means to express commitment to Jesus publicly. It is sharing about what you have in common with Jesus publicly. It is conceding to Jesus, confessing that he is true and right, Publicly, it is a public declaration, a profession of allegiance to Christ who is praiseworthy and true. So everyone who acknowledges Jesus before men publicly, the son of man, Jesus, will acknowledge them before the angels of God. Amen. So the des designation or title son of man highlights Christ's 
human nature, and servanthood. An example of this is in Matthew 8, 20, where Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, a man, has nowhere to lay his head. He is a man. But this title, Son of Man, also talks about Daniel's vision. It talks about the authority he had and the power he had in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. So acknowledging the Son of Man means professing publicly an allegiance to him. And it means that Jesus will confess before the angels of God those who belong to him. But for those who deny him, verse 9, the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. I think it's important to know what denial means, right? Now, this is an essential question because who denied Jesus three times? Does that mean that Peter will be denied before the angels of God? I mean, he did deny him, didn't he? Three times. Back to back to back. The answer is no. Denial here describes an action that happened in the past. However, unlike other verb tenses, listen, it focuses on presenting the action as a quick snapshot of how someone lived. That's the Greek tense. It provides a concise and summary depiction of a past action. It is the conclusion of a life lived that has denied Christ. It's not talking about moments where you've denied. It's talking about a life lived in denial of Christ. Does that help? Denial speaks of someone's past life. It reflects the condition one has remained in. A life of rejection will be a life of unbelief, which Peter did not stay in. If you go to the book of Acts, you see a bold Peter. You see a Peter talking in front of the synagogue. You see Peter being threatened being, to be jailed and to be killed, yet he continued to persevere in his preaching of the gospel. A life of denying Jesus, the Son of Man, will be rejected publicly by Jesus before all the angels of God, which proves even more that Jesus will be speaking past tense, being that it will be when one faces the angels of God. If you're in front of the angels of God, it's assumed that you died. Right? And so then, your life is going to be looked at. Have you lived a life of accepting Christ? of rejoicing in Christ, of speaking about him publicly, or has your life been one of rejection? Matthew 7, 21 through 23 is a good example. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They never knew him, and he never knew them. Those who come before Christ and his angels would have lived a life of lawlessness and rejection, and a life of denial is a life of lawlessness and rejection of Christ. And so to deny means that one has lived a life of refusing to believe in Jesus. Refusing to say publicly that Christ is true and right. It was a refusal to associate with Christ publicly. I know sometimes, don't you get that embarrassment sometimes? Have you been embarrassed of Jesus? Because you don't want to interrupt the conversation or some of y'all who used to be in college in a party or something, 
and you're around unbelievers and you know in your heart that you shouldn't be there and you know that any mention of Christ will change the tone and the temperature of the room. You ever felt that? I did. There were times where I was so afraid to share because I didn't want to be looked at a certain way. This was a refusal to live a public life that displayed a love for Christ. A life of doing these things where the Son of Man is not acknowledged is a life that will be denied before the angels of God. Now, this should encourage those who struggle since we can wrestle with our issues. Example, like fearing people, but acknowledging we need him shows that we have not arrived at a place of denying God. So your struggle to share, your struggle to actually be public with your faith, and you really want to, but you're struggling with that, the very struggle in itself shows you haven't been in full-blown denial. That should be an encouragement. Because I still struggle at times. Even though I've gotten better. That's why... I would encourage you, come up with like stickers or T-shirts. You know, that's what I do. I wear T-shirts. And it talks about like, I have one that says, I told you guys before many times, um, introverted but willing to discuss theology. You know, I wear that shirt at the cafe. And people will be like, hey, you know, you're not Muslim? No, I'm not Muslim, dog. I'm, you know, I'm actually a pastor. But it invites conversation. Now, I am introverted. I don't like when people talk to me. Seriously, I get people tired. Um, but I'm a Christian, man. And I'm supposed to be a witness. I'm supposed to be a light. And so when someone comes up to me and asks questions about the Lord, I better be ready to share about the person I love. And that doesn't require me to be perfect. It just requires me to be authentic and genuine. I've told unbelievers, look, man, this isn't a life that's perfect. I've suffered more as a Christian than without, but I've had peace through it. So I'd rather have peace through the storm than avoid the storm at all and be weak. I've come out stronger. And I share my testimony. I share about the gospel and what Christ has done. And then it becomes something that I can't stop doing. The introvert. That's what we're called to do. This should encourage us. Jesus did warn them to fear the one who has authority to cast one into hell. But it was not a fear of the punishment, but rather of God himself. Listen. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You're not to live a life as a Christian in fear of condemnation. God will not cast you out. But you should be afraid. It's like, you know, if I had a healthy father example, I didn't have a good father growing up. But a good father knows to discipline his children, not abuse them. And so when the kids do something they're not supposed to do, they should rightly fear dad, right? But they also know that dad loves them. They also know that dad provides for them. I know that's, that's hard for some of us who didn't have fathers. I get it. But as a father, I understood later on that I am to discipline my kids but not abuse 
And they should have a healthy fear of a consequence. But they shouldn't lose love in the process. So rightly fear the Lord. Jesus followed by telling them twice to fear not because the Father's good pleasure was to give them the kingdom, not hell. God is not out to punish you. He's out to bless you. But then when you start tripping, he's out to discipline you. He will discipline those he loves. He's a good father. So Jesus is teaching his disciples, including Peter, who would deny him, but doesn't remain in denial, that a life of having denied the Son of Man will end with denial before the angels of God. This was not meant to cause fear of punishment, but rather to encourage them, and it was to give them a sense of urgency for those who would deny and speak against Jesus. Our second point, speaking against the Son of Man in verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. The other Gospels except John have Jesus speaking about this. Matthew chapter 12 has this account. Mark chapter 3 also has this account. And here in Luke 12, we have this account. Now in the first half of Matthew 12, 31, this is what Jesus said in the same topic of the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit and denying the, the Son of Man. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. He also said in Mark 3, 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemes, blasphemies they utter, all of it will be forgiven. Then Jesus began to say in both Matthew and Mark that every sin and blasphemy that man utters will be forgiven. And Jesus avoided using the word blasphemy when speaking about himself. That's very interesting. So what does it mean to speak against the Son of Man? Well, it means to express a thought, opinion, idea, through speech in public, towards or against the Son of Man. It means one has devised and planned to contradict and come against Jesus. And we have them. We have people that have come against Christ. Why can this be forgiven? Why is it that you can mouth off on Christ and that could be forgiven. I get mad when some of y'all mouth off on me. <laughs> and I want to show you. I want to represent. I want to like tell you about you know, yourself, right? <laughs> but not so with Christ. That can be forgiven. So what does it mean? Well, the incarnate ministry of Jesus is one of showing mercy and not judgment. When judgment was applied, it wasn't applied to us. It was applied to Christ. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Then in John 12.47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Praise be to God. Those who speak against Christ, the Son of Man, will be forgiven because judgment had not occurred through the Son yet in his humiliation. However, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it is something entirely different. 
Jesus said that the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Listen, I've read over 20-something commentaries on this. This has been a very highly debated topic in the church. And you know what? Today, you're not going to be satisfied with my answer, some of y'all. This has been a very difficult passage. But I did have two questions. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And why is it a sin that cannot be forgiven? So the first question, why is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is it? What prompted Jesus to say this was that the scribes in Mark 3 said that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3, verses 28 through 30. Mark 3, 28 through 30 says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Then he says in verse 34, he's telling you why he said this. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is the reason for Jesus bringing this up. Claiming that Jesus had an unclean spirit prompted him to respond by saying that it is an eternal sin to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. All sins will be forgiven except this one. Mark's account tells us the reason for Jesus responding with the statement. Clearly, it was because they accused Jesus of having a demonic, unclean spirit. Now, they were slandering, reviling, and defaming the work of Jesus as demonic. That's what blaspheming meant, to slander, revile, defame. It is slander, revilement. And a defamation of God while acknowledging him. That's the key right there. This is not just an ignorant like, uh, you know, Jesus isn't God. Jesus is evil. Jesus didn't exist. It's not that. It's acknowledging that he did. Believing that he did exist. And saying, I'm still not going to believe. It's an out. It's an outright rejection, but not just rejection. It's slandering, reviling, and defaming Christ. The response here in Mark 3 tells us that Jesus said this because they accused him and his work as demonic. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to call the work of the Holy Spirit demonic. But it is not just calling it that, it's believing it. I remember seeing videos on YouTube, people playing that blaspheming of the Holy Spirit game, but they would actually say that Jesus is demonic. They'll say it publicly and playing games like that. Do you know that's not what this is talking about? You can say with your mouth, Jesus has a demonic spirit and not mean it. I mean, it's, it's pretty whack that you're saying that. But if you genuinely believe that, if you genuinely believe that the work of Christ in the Holy Spirit is demonic, what hope do you have? See, the claim is inseparable from belief. 
It's not just saying it, it's believing it. The reason why I believe this is because of the nature of what is happening in our text. Jesus, the sinless Son of Man, God in the flesh, who is in perfect union with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, is not only being called demonic. The scribes, Pharisees, and lawyers believe in their hearts that he has an unclean spirit. They believe this so much that they wanted to kill him. What does it mean to believe that the work of Jesus is demonic? It means that one not only lives a life of unbelief, but their, but their belief in this at the core leaves them with no hope since that is what they concluded. J.C. Rowell says this, and I, I love his commentary on this. He said, the great question of the impardonable sin and the possibility of falling into it in modern days is a distinct branch of the subject and is not the chief point of the passage before us. Be careful. That there is such a sin as clear, that it consists of the union of the clearest head knowledge of the gospel with the deliberate rejection of it. And deliberate choice of sin in the world seems highly probable. He says that those who are troubled with fear that they have committed it are just the persons who have not committed it. Is the judgment of all the soundest of the divines. Utter hardness, callousness, and insensibility of conscience are probably leading characteristics of the man who has sinned the unpardonable sin. He is let alone and given over to a reprobate mind. This is so important. If you're here struggling with the fact that you might have been that, you're not that. The person who's, who's condemned and reprobate doesn't preoccupy himself with whether he did that or not. So if you're here today and you're wrestling like, dang, I wonder if I did that, your wondering of it is proving you haven't done it yet. Praise God. This is so important because, listen, legalism, I, you know, I didn't grow up in church, but I had a lot of experiences in legalistic Hispanic churches. And they would threaten their own members with blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That is not what this is for. This is descriptive of those who went as far as to be calloused so much that they overtly and publicly reject Christ. But if you're here today and you're struggling in your faith and you're wondering, did I do this or not? You qualify as someone who hasn't done it yet. This is not you. And so what is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? Listen, it is the conclusion of a person's life as one that has rejected the work of the Holy Spirit to the point of being left with a condition that will not receive forgiveness and shows only a hard and calloused heart that can never come to repentance. Praise God. Because you know what? I haven't gone as far as to have a calloused heart. I struggle in my faith sometimes. I struggle. I wonder. You know, and, and your assurance sometimes, right? Some of you struggle with assurance. Mm -hmm. The fact that you struggle with assurance is assurance. <laughs> Praise God. Because I'm alive. Like, I'm struggling with my faith, and I know I need Jesus, but sometimes I feel like 
I don't believe in Jesus and I'm struggling with this. The struggle in itself is life. It doesn't stop. But why is this particular sin one that cannot be forgiven? The reason why speaking against Jesus is forgivable here is because Jesus did not come to condemn. He was still working and he was still in his humiliation granting forgiveness. However, the Holy Spirit and his work through Jesus and after is the last of the triune effort and work to apply redemptive. The redemption that was given at the cross to those who needed it. The Holy Spirit is the last person of the Trinity to apply redemption. A slandering, a reviling, a defaming of that, a complete rejection of that will produce someone who is seared in their mind, depraved and given over, someone who has concluded that God is not for them. Paul warned Timothy about them in 1 Timothy 4. The Spirit says that in latter times, Paul says, some will depart from the faith by the devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons whose conscience is seared. Seared meaning that you're numb to the things of God. And not only numb, but overtly against it. Many have feared whether they have committed the eternal sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Here's how you know. Again, if your life hasn't overtly and passionately slandered and defamed the work of God, if you are still acknowledging that God is needed and you still live, you have not committed this sin. If you have anything in you that professes a need for God, that is a sign that you have not committed this sin. Jesus is describing to the disciples the condition of those who rejected him and called the work of the Holy Spirit demonic and would never come to repentance. He's speaking of a callous state and hopelessness, which the scribes, lawyers, and Pharisees had, and it actually was proven in their rejection. So this, in turn, should encourage the disciples, because even later, when Peter denies Jesus three times, it will be forgiven. And Peter would not live a life of denial. The disciples left Jesus at his arrest. Yet they will live lives of martyrdom. Proving that Jesus would not deny them later. They left Jesus. They denied him three times. And what does he do? He goes back to them and says he loves them. If I was Peter, I would have been like, hold up, Lord. You said if I deny you, you would deny me. What did, what did Jesus do? Do you love me? Three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. You know all things. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? You already heard what I had to say, Lord, yes. <laughs> Feed my lambs. Go and preach. You're forgiven. Because you're not going to live a life of denial. You know that even after Peter preached, we see later in the book of Acts and even in Galatians, Peter messed up again. He was chilling with, you know, the, the whatchamacallit, the, the circumcised, or the, uh, yeah, the circumcised uh, group that believed everybody should be circumcised. He was chilling with them, and then when the Gentiles would come in, he would act like he didn't know them. 
That's a gospel issue. And it took Paul to rebuke him openly for it. Peter didn't live a perfect life. No matter what Rome says. But he knew Jesus. And he messed up. And he was still his. Listen, this in our text was to assure them that even in their sin of denying Jesus and leaving him at his arrest, they would be forgiven and even compelled to lose their lives after. Those who are troubled with fear that they have committed the eternal sin are just the persons who have not committed it. I believe this would have reminded the apostles in the book of Acts when facing their persecutors. I believe this had the opposite effect. Instead of causing the disciples a fear that would paralyze them, it would encourage them to do gospel ministry. Why do I believe this? Well, if the worst that could happen is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit and Jesus is never going to cast us out, what do we have to fear? If the worst that could happen is that at Judgment Day, Jesus says, I never knew you, but I know I'm his and I live a life of repentance and confession of sin. When I go to him, he's going to say, well done. And if I'm his blood bought by the blood of the lamb, saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. If that's me, I'm going to go before him assured. Because the worst that could ever happen is behind me. He will never cast us out. He will never say you're worthless. He will never say, man, you, you had this wrong, you had this. No, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, come in. This would encourage the disciples. They could face anything and speak for Jesus in boldness and with conviction. To close, the third point, speaking for the Son of Man in verses 11 through 12. Verse 11 says that when he bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Jesus tells his disciples of three groups they would face. Number one, the synagogues. The synagogue was the modern-day church at that time. Jesus is telling them that when being brought to religious communal gatherings at the synagogue, don't be anxious. Don't try to defend yourself. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say have a good argument. He doesn't say defend yourself. He doesn't say make sure you have a good counter-argument. Go to seminary first. He doesn't say that. He says, trust that the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. Second, the rulers. There are those in charge of the local civil authorities. By rulers, it means those in authority. Being brought before the rulers would have meant that there would be accusations of coming against the state. But even with this being the case, what would happen in the book of Acts? They would have boldness. Encouraged because the Holy Spirit would be with them. Then the authorities, more people in the civil magistrate who would accuse them of wrong. God, Jesus is telling them, don't be anxious about what to say because being brought before all these people, the Holy Spirit will be with you. So when threatened in a religious setting or by the state and local authorities, the response they needed to give was not to be contrived or practice, 
Instead, it was to be out of trust. It is trusting that what one should say comes from the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what to say. Now, Peter denied Jesus three times, but what did Peter look like after being given the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Acts chapter 4 tells us, right? He was bold. They healed a beggar, and they complained about that healing. Then in Acts 4, 5 through 10, it says, On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, Peter and John, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Does that sound like a weak Peter? No, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was given what to say. Then if you keep going in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We need that today. Now, there are other examples in the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit empowering believers. You, know, you see Stephen telling every religious people off about their sin, but preach the word of God boldly. This brings a check we all need to make who profess genuine faith in Christ. So when speaking for the Son of Man, do we speak first from a place of trust in the Holy Spirit? Do we teach from a place of trust? Do we come to church trusting that the Holy Spirit is here with us? You know that the same message given to the disciples is the same message we have today. The gospel message of the resurrection of Christ is the same message. We have the same Holy Spirit. You don't have to be an expert theologian to share Christ. You just got to be a genuine one. I can't tell you how many people go out in the street and just evangelize and forget they should be praying to evangelize. I'm going to go to the cafes and share Jesus. You better make sure you prayed first and trust that the spirit will give you what to say rather than having all your arguments and everything laid out. And now you're ready to take over the world. No. Trust in the Holy Spirit. Listen, we are to be without reservations. Our lives should publicly speak of the one we love. I'm not embarrassed to share Jesus at times, I do feel embarrassed, but that's because I'm a sinner. Yeah. I still need redemption. Yeah. Well, no, I've been redeemed. <laughs> Let me correct that by the blood of Christ, but I'm being sanctified. Right. That's probably a better way to say it. Amen. Yeah. You YouTubers, don't be just, you know what I'm saying? They'll just take that little portion and be like, look what Pastor Lowe said. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> We're still being sanctified. 
There are times where we're going to feel fear in sharing Christ. But more importantly, does our life speak without reservation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do we live and so that people can see the gospel in our lives? I know that some of us, again, the assurance piece is a struggle for us. We live in a very technical, mechanical culture, just, you know, technology culture. The things of God seem very far here. Right? They seem very far. The, the spiritual things seem very far. When we talk about angels and demons, it seems awkward even in the church. I'm around a lot of pastors, a lot of leaders. When I, began, when I begin to talk about the things of God, spiritually speaking, when I talk about, you know, uh, demonic attacks, which our church has experienced, they start twitching a little bit. Like, I'm like, yo, did you read your Bible, dog? Like, the devil's here. Luke chapter 4, all over the Bible, why is it that we act funny on the things of God? We're at war. There's a battle for your soul. The moment you step out of here, the devil's working 24-7 to take you with him. The question is, do you have authentic faith to survive? Forget perfect faith. None of us have it. But do you live with authentic faith? Are you broken when you sin? Are you broken when you fall short? And instead of being an expert at every argument and topic, maybe you should be on your knees more and say, Lord, give me the thing to say for this person who needs you. That's a better place to be. And thank God that those of us who are here who struggle with assurance, will say, you know what, sometimes I don't think I'm saved. And sometimes it feels like I, I'm not a Christian. And the fact that you wrestle with that, the fact that you're here, the fact that you, you'll raise your hand, the fact that you come on some Sundays and you don't want to be here, but you come anyway, there is life in you. All of us struggle with our faith. The disciples would. Peter did. But the gospel tells us that once we are his, we're always his. He will never cast us out. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you be with us. Prepare our hearts today for communion, Lord. Be gracious. Be merciful. Help us to know you and know that you are